0: Uh, there's a story that's kind of old that's been told before uh, about an eagle that was perched on a block of ice uh, just above Niagara Falls. And as the, the current was beginning to get faster, the eagle was on the, he was on the, the block of ice. This is a fictional story, so that's why they're getting ready to talk in a second. And as the ice was traveling down the Niagara To the edge, the other birds warned the eagle of the danger, saying, There's a cliff coming. There's like the the falls are going to happen. Be aware. And their words were not listened to. The eagle said, I have great and powerful wings, he boasted. I can fly from this perch at any time. Suddenly, the edge of the falls was only a few feet away. The eagle spreads his big, powerful wings to mount up to fly only to find that his claws had become frozen to the block of ice. Likewise, the scriptures warn us to think that if we are immune to sin or immune to temptation, that we must be very, very careful not to be prideful, that we could be on the verge of falling. Uh, It is foolish for any Christian or one who claims to be to think, you know what, I'll be fine, Uh, Oftentimes, those who think that the words following at some point after are, man, I never thought that would happen to me, that I would fall that way. Every Christian needs to know that yielding to temptation can happen and will unless we are instructed and warned about what to do. And this is what Paul is actually going to do in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you remember, it seems like a long time ago, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talked a lot about uh, meat being sacrificed in idols. Maybe you remember that. And Paul's saying it has to do with conscience and what to do. And he he warns them uh, that, yes, while you can partake in these things, it may not always be the best option. Maybe you should refrain from certain things for wisdom's sake. Maybe refraining is the mature thing to do instead of saying, well, I can do it because I'm a strong Christian. Maybe Paul's saying, well, maybe you should back up and just not even do it. And then in chapter 10, or in chapter 9, If you notice, the entire section was Paul making himself an example of of fleeing from temptation saying, Well, I'm an apostle. I have all the rights in the world, yet not even I will do certain things. He's using himself as an example to remind us not to fall, not to give in. And if you remember at the end of chapter 9, Paul says that I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. So even Paul is saying... That he doesn't want to be disqualified with temptation and sin. And if you're the Corinthians, you're probably hearing these things from Paul and saying, "Well, that's great for you, Paul. We're glad you're very careful. We're fine. I don't need to beat my body up and be all aggressive like like that. That's you, you're crazy, Paul. Like, go for it. We don't really need that." And chapter ten is Paul's uh, plea with them to not think that way, to respond to what we call being overconfident or even just being maybe spiritually prideful you could say Uh, you guys probably know the famous proverb that pride comes before the fall and paul does that so helpful here by appealing to the old testament he gives us a good history lesson of it here and in doing so before we walk through this passage i want you to recognize uh, a familiar word you'll you'll recognize multiple familiar phrases but one of the most popular or most uh Repeated words, sorry, in this section, if you look at just verses 1 through, uh, the first four verses, 1 through 4, you'll see that the word all appears five times in four verses. So Paul's going to remind us that all the people of Israel, all of them, all of them, all of them, had these great blessings that happened, and yet terrible things happened. He's going to use the word they and we. Multiple times in the next thing to just to remind you. Remember, look to them, look to them, look to yourself, look to yourself. So just a reminder to look for repeated phrases. So first we're gonna look at the shared blessings that the people of Israel had in common that they all had, that all the people had. So look at verse one. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So again, if you have your if you have your Bibles, we're gonna jump first to Exodus chapter 13. And we're going to kind of go almost chapter by chapter because Paul's going to refer to this narrative quite a bit. But in Exodus 13, perhaps you know what's going on. Uh, the the Lord has just struck down the firstborn, right, the, to release the people from Egypt and slavery. And in chapter 13, in verse 21 and following, we are told that the people are going to travel with the cloud, right, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? And what is... Uh, As they leave Egypt. So the Lord frees them and brings them all the way to the promised land. This is what's going to happen. And Paul uses the phrase, our fathers, reminding the Corinthians that you are almost like Israelites. You have a lot in common with them, not just spiritually, but also with the things that they experience. So the pillar of the cloud Paul's referring to uh, when they're traveling in the wilderness. Don't think of like like a forest. It's not like a wilderness, like out in the backyard. It's like a desert right so as they were traveling through the wilderness if you look at exodus 13 starting in verse 21 it says the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night so as they were traveling through the lord gave them cloud think of having a huge cloud over you in the desert what a gift Ooh, that feel good. I mean, it was 95 degrees a couple of days ago. I would love for a couple clouds to appear. Wouldn't it be nice? They got comfort. They were shaded, right? It was cool. And it was just a physical reminder of the Lord is with us. He's walking with us. We have nothing to fear. And same with at night. Even when it was at night, when you'd be scared to travel? You know, they didn't bring their flashlights and their, their iPhones. They had nothing to see with. So they had a fire. They could see. They had warmth. They had protection. People would be scared. Well, look at that fire. We're not going to go attack them. Look at that fire, right? So they had just immense protection, immense safety. The God who took them from Egypt continued to guide them away from Egypt. And look at if you look again in verse 1, stay where we are in Exodus 13. But Paul then says, and they all passed through the sea. So go to Exodus chapter 14, and you know this story, the crossing of the Red Sea. The cloud now moves from being behind the people as a pillar of cloud to protect them with shade and to give them cool. And to give them a sense of security. But now, as they get to the Red Sea, they think, man, how are we going to cross this ocean? What are we going to do? And what does the cloud do? Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 14, you know that the cloud steps between, or steps, goes between the people and the Egyptians who are pursuing them. So the Lord just blocks the path so the Egyptians cannot get to them. He does this all night. And then what happens? Moses stretches out his hand, the Red Sea parts. And the people walk literally right through the Red Sea. I mean, can you imagine this? You you see all these these fish flopping on the ground because they didn't make the cut, right? They're flopping on the ground. Wet wet sand. These huge rocks just soaked, And you're walking with these pillars of water, just these walls of water all around you thinking, is this really happening? So they're delivered through the sea, the waters that would then save the people would actually consume and destroy all of the egyptians pharaoh and just wipe them all out i mean this is powerful isn't this amazing scene i mean it's stunning just walk through the ocean the egyptians come and god just says kill them and they just all gone It's amazing it's a, it's a this is this is the old this is the story of the old testament god's power Then in verse two, Paul says this, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So their people were rescued by the Lord. They followed Moses through the sea as a tangible, visible proof of their obedience as Israelites. I want you to hear something very important. Uh, If you're an Israelite during that time, a visible marker of being an Israelite was what? Well, you passed through the sea, you you had the cloud behind you, and you followed Moses, right? That was a, literally, that was a marker. How did you know who was an Israelite? Well, you walked through the Red Sea, right? And you followed Moses through the Red Sea, right? Moses was their leader, their rescuer. He's the one chosen by God to redeem his people. Uh, Moses represented God to the people and the people before God. You could call him a mediator. They were ransomed from slavery in Egypt, led by the Lord through the sea, and were baptized into Moses. Now, what does that mean? What do you mean, baptized? I don't think it refers to the baptism that we do. Uh, Paul will talk about that later, but I don't think so. What I think Paul is getting at is being immersed or maybe being baptized into the, the leadership of Moses, right? So they're not being under underwater like we do though they had a kind of baptism. That's not, I think what Paul is talking about is that people were rather immersed into the, the loyalty of Moses, right? What's it look like to be an Israelite? Well, you follow Moses through the Red Sea, right? Does that make sense? I think it seems to be Paul is saying you identify a person outside as an Israelite by what they went through, what they walked through. Regardless, Paul, from a New Testament perspective, can say this was like a... a a, a shadow of what baptism looks like. It's a, it's a visible marker on the outside that you're following Christ. Right? I think that's what Paul's saying. Then in verse 3, so go to Exodus chapter 16. Paul says this in verse 3 And all ate the same spiritual food. So, Exodus 16, as they cross the Red Sea, their enemies have just been consumed. Specifically in Exodus 16, verses 2 through 4, Moses writes this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. They may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what what the Israelites saying? So they saw these gray acts and they say, well, at least in slavery we had sandwiches, Moses. Come on, man. We had McChickens. We get nothing out. We're getting, we're getting nothing out here. Is this, is this really good? So having just been redeemed, they begin to grumble. Uh, Psalm 105, there's multiple psalms that are written about the Exodus. and One of them says this. The people asked, And he brought the Lord, brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. So the Lord responds so kindly, even though they grumbled. What does he send them? Manna, bread. He literally gives them abundant provision. And Exodus 16 likewise tells us that they had this manna for how long? Do you know how long they had it for in the wilderness? All 40 years. So for 40 years, nonstop in the wilderness... They had daily bread. No needs for food. They didn't have to look for a drive-thru. They had bread every single day for 40 years. God just, he responded with nothing but mercy to them. And Paul says it's spiritual food. I think it alludes to the fact that it comes from heaven. Not that it's like pretend food, but it's God's provision. Again, God does not forsake his people. He sustains them. He feeds them. Though we wander in the wilderness, God sustains all those that he saves. In doing so, he makes a name for himself. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that they all drank from the same spiritual drink. So turn your Bible to another page, Exodus chapter 17. So we're going almost chapter by chapter here. In Exodus 17, we read this, starting in verse 1, the second half of verse 1. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, so again, and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out to Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So what, what again is the very gentle problem? In slavery, we had water breaks, Moses. For crying out loud. They're literally crying out loud, saying this like they're upset. Like we had water breaks, we had water bottles, right? We can't even get water here. And again, what happens? What does the Lord do? Well, He tells Moses to stand, to go to the 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 rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, right? So Moses goes to this big rock, he strikes a rock, and water gushes out. I think oftentimes we think, oh, it probably just like a water hose just kind of leaked out, came up pretty slow again multiple psalms psalm 105 and psalm 78 specifically say that it was like a river so it wasn't like a little trickle i mean it just ran through the desert it was a huge miracle that god took care of his people he gave them life-giving water though they were god grumbling sinners right again he demonstrates his long patience his continual keeping of the covenant and in verse four paul ends this section uh, First Corinthians by saying this, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So even here we have a good way to read your Old Testament to know that Jesus is in the Old Testament. It's actually all about Him, right? And Paul says specifically that He was He was there. He was the rock. He's a rock refers to God's unchanging nature that He's immutable, that He endures, right? And this rock follow them namely christ was with his people he was following them taking care of them he was guiding them jesus was present in the old testament though his glory was veiled so they didn't see him the way that we know him he was veiled he was it was a mystery right but they understood that jesus was there and jesus was the rock that was struck to sustain and take care of his people do you hear the gospel in that We grumble and we sin and we complain against the Lord. And who is struck to take care of you? Well, it should be us. But instead, God strikes the rock who is Christ to take care of his people. Isn't that kind? So can you see the parallel that Paul is setting up for us? Friends, how much more do we have? We have greater things than what the people of Israel had. Do you you realize that? And we don't have the Red Sea. We don't have a pillar of cloud. But we have something better, namely someone better than all of that. And if you know anything about the basic Sunday school answer to any question you probably don't really get wrong with, what is the answer you can always throw out? It's Jesus. What's better than a Red Sea? Christ. So the Israelites had a pillar of cloud outside of them that guided them. But we have something better. Matthew 28, Jesus says this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So they had the cloud outside of them, directing them, leading them. But friends, we have the Holy Spirit within us, guiding us, not from without, but from within. Isn't that better than a cloud? The Israelites were baptized into Moses, who was just a servant of God, but we have the Son of God. Moses gave the law. Jesus gives us, as John says, grace and truth. Jesus speaks a better word than Moses. Christ is better than Moses. Moses was just a man who would die because he was a sinner. But Jesus lives forevermore. We identify with one better than Moses, namely the Son of God. The Israelites ate manna and drank water from the rock, but we drink and eat from Christ. Jesus was the rock that was struck for our sins and provides for us. We have something better than manna from heaven, And you're probably thinking, if you know your New Testament, you're thinking of a a place where Jesus literally tells us exactly what that was meant to be. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this. Starting in verse uh, 47, if you want to go there, you're welcome to. But Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Likewise, in 54 and 55, Jesus says that he is true bread, he is true food, he is true drink. So what's better than having water from a rock or a manna from heaven? We well, eat those things, but you're still going to die. Jesus saying, if you eat of me, you will never die. Well, how do you eat of Christ? Well, in a, in a simple way, you should think of the Lord's table, which Paul is going to go to in the next chapter. But for us, the way that you drink and you eat and partake of Christ is what Jesus says before this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So how do you, how are you spiritually nourished? How how are your, your longings met? Not by manna from heaven, but from the living bread. Friends, we, we, we enjoy Christ. We are sustained by him, by faith, by believing in him. Deuteronomy 8 says this, that God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might. Make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I hope you see what Paul is doing. He's showing us the parallel. And then in verse 5, Paul is going to show us that many of the Israelites, despite all these great things, many of them died. And Not just died, but were judged. So the shared blessings, now we're going to the shared blessings sinfulness look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians Paul says this nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness so the israelites had every sign they needed every every revelation of god's kindness every evidence of god's goodness and yet they did not most of them did not know god truly with their hearts They needed more than salvation from Egypt. They needed salvation from their sins, the Egypt that dwells within them. Free from outward slavery, but not free from their sins. So the Exodus is meant to show you that, that the reality is you don't just need a physical Exodus, you need a spiritual Exodus. You have a sin problem. You are a slave to your sins. You need to be redeemed. It says God was not pleased with with most of them. How many of the Israelites that left Egypt died in the wilderness. Well, if you remember your Old Testament, when, when, when Paul says most of them, he's actually referring to every single person but two, Joshua and Caleb. Now, their children would be raised up and they would live. That's, those are the ones that entered the promised land. But we think about 600,000 men, that's the number we have of just men, not counting women and children, so more than that, died in the wilderness during the 40 years of their wandering. Half a million people, if not more, died in the wilderness over a span of 40 years. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is this. This happened to the people in Israel. And in the church in Corinth and in our church today in America, it is possible to partake of every spiritual blessing. Baptism, the Lord's table, to be part of the church, to have God's good mercies upon you, and yet no and not know who Christ is and die and be judged. One can It's been said before, one can profess Christ, but one may not possess Christ. Do you feel the warning? This is a serious passage, isn't it? They saw all these things, and yet none of, many of them didn't even really know the Lord. We have no excuse. That's what Paul is saying. The Corinthians have no excuse. Look at verse 6. Now, these things took place as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul says, these are pictures; these are like movies playing for you to look at and to to watch and go. Oh, okay, I should learn something from this Old Testament movie about Israel. You should. In the history of Israel, we see that the real problem is that they desired evil. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen gives a very lengthy sermon, probably longer than mine. Uh, that the Israelites, their problem was they turned back to Egypt, he actually says, in their heart. So the problem was, though, they physically left. In their hearts, they're like, man, I wish we had slavery. We had water bottles at least. That food was all right. They wanted, they wanted their old life. They longed for the, the Egypt they were in. They had outward moral compliance. Yeah, we'll take the bread. Bread's pretty good. But inwardly, they did not want God. They wanted their own desires. And we know that God looks not upon the outward appearance, but upon the heart. Paul said this is recorded for us as a warning. that outward outward profession, no matter how correct, will always be negated by an evil heart. They craved other things. God was not their treasure, but God was a means to their treasure. Do you understand the difference? It's possible to say, well, I... Yeah, I love God, but I really love what he can get me. He can get me all these good things. I mean, yeah, he's good, but he's a really good waiter. He gives me all that I want. That's the difference. The difference between true and false conversion is what Paul is pointing out. Is Christ your treasure, or does he simply get you the things that you want? And Paul's going to unfold that that was the root, that was the problem that Israel had, namely Idolatry, look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to drink and rose, to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. If you got your Bibles again, we'll be in Exodus chapter 32. Whenever you hear the the, the phrase Exodus 32, you should always think of cattle. Because That's the golden calf. This is probably the one of the most horrifying moments in the Old Testament, if you know what's going on. Next to chapter 32, Moses was apparently on the mountain just a little bit too long. The patience grew thin. And what did the people do? Well, they gather Aaron. They say, Aaron, we need a God because Moses is taking way too long and we can't see him. So Aaron goes, yeah, okay. Moses' own brother just sells him out. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and make one. So they don't go to Lowe's to buy God. They make their own, actually. They make their own. They throw in all their jewelry and they melt together and make a golden calf. And chapter thirty two of Exodus verse five, we read this. And when Aaron saw this, so they made the golden calf, the people are worshiping. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I hope you hear what's happening. So they build this golden calf and they say, Yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's worship that. And then Aaron says, Well, let's build an altar for the Lord, and what we'll, we'll, we'll have a feast day too. What are they doing? They're mixing them, right? Let's have our golden calf, and let's have the Lord. Let's just have them both. Imagine, remember remember what these people saw: the Red Sea, the cloud. They're saying, "We need more than one God." Friends, is this not insanity to you? I think your jaw should just be open, thinking these people are insane. They are they want a god they can craft on their own that they can approach on their own terms they can handle how they want position how they want even call it when they want and put it away when they don't want to deal with it paul says that they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play that's what we have in exodus 32 verse 6 Um, i won't go into great detail but we have very very clear evidence not only from here but also from other texts that that is that is a euphemism for not just a party and drinking and dancing but for sexual morality to probably the highest extent that we could think of. In Corinth, there are idols everywhere, and Paul takes them to Exodus 32 and says, that's coming your way. Don't partake. Don't just dabble around in sin and say, I'll come back. Don't do that. The Lord brings judgment by a sword from Moses, and then he kills about 3,000 with a plague. Friends, our hearts are a battlefield for our affections. The Bible says to set your mind on things that are above where Christ is. So what is the warning? Do not be idolaters. Do not love things above Christ. We can't have both. Look at verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. If you want to follow along with this story, you have to be in the book of Numbers. Chapter twenty-five is where Paul's going next, so he's jumping to the book of Numbers. It looks like, and in Numbers twenty-five, verses one through nine. I won't read the whole story, but what happens is again more insanity. So the people, in verse one, I'll just kind of give you the heads up here: what's happening? The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what's happening? Well, the people are saying, you know what? That nation that's just right down the road, we should marry some of their daughters. They're pretty. Now, that was an explicit command against the Lord to not do. Do you know why that was? This is exactly why. It had nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with anything, but that when you do it, they're going to drag you away. They're going to say, why don't you try our gods? Okay, and what do they do? Exactly what God said would happen, right? They do verbatim what He said would happen. And the Lord gets angry for a good reason, and he commands Moses and the judges, kill them. The ones that are doing that, wipe them out. Then look at verse 5 of Numbers 25. I'm sorry, verse 6. And behold, whenever the Bible says the word behold, it means to look. So what should you do? Well, you should look. The Bible tells you to look. You better look, right? And look. One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent. So what happens? Some guy goes out and goes, I'll just bring her in. Everyone sees it. So this is bad. This is bad, bad. Right? They're weeping probably because they just had a bunch of people get struck down for doing this. And then some guy goes, I'll just bring her in. And in front of everybody. In front of Moses and the whole congregation. And again, you probably know what happens. God commands more. Uh, Phineas goes and he actually spears this man and his woman through while they're in bed. Uh, we can go through that passage another day if you want to know why I think there's nothing wrong with this passage. But here's something that's good to, to think about is God will always be forsaken to meet sensual needs. It is impossible to be a Christian say, I can be a Christian, but I also want to have my other needs met through another means. It will never happen. You will always choose your other needs over Christ. Guaranteed. You cannot have both. Right? That's what Paul is showing. And here, Moses, God orders Moses to strike them down. And then at the end of this narrative... A plague comes, and 24,000 people die. 24,000 people die. Uh, real quick, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. If Paul says that 23,000 died in a single day. So which one is it, 23 or 24? Uh-oh, which one is it? I think there's some ways to think about that are very simple. Uh, number one, maybe Paul is just counting the 23,000 by the plague and not counting the ones that Moses... And then took down, probably a thousand, right? Paul doesn't, he's not counting, he's talking about the plague. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. That's why there's probably crying in verse six. Moses folds all this under, saying, well, the plague wiped them all out because, well, technically it was the plague's fault that did all this, right? Uh, option number two, Paul says 23,000 died in a day. Moses just says that 24,000 died. So maybe a thousand died a couple days after because of the plague. I think that's a good solution too. One more option, that is Paul could be speaking of Exodus chapter 32, because we were just there and a plague happened, and Paul might have outside information with Jewish tradition saying that's how many died. So just, I, I want to just give that as a footnote of saying there's no contradiction here, there's no issue, uh, there are plausible solutions to things like this. But what should we be thinking of? That God views adultery, sexual immorality, and all sexual lusts, whether it's entertaining thoughts, Of lust or desiring adultery is this serious? We must come to grips with this in the world. Did you know that pornography is more accessible than ever? On average, one in five mobile phone searches are for pornography. Did you know that? Did you know that nearly 30,000 people view it every second of the day? 30,000 people. The average age of someone's first viewing is age 12. Many of our movies and TV shows have bedroom scenes that we don't shy away from. Our country even has an entire month dedicated to the LGBTQ. That is the month of June. And do you know what we call it? We call it Pride Month. Do you feel the heatful irony that you should shudder for that month? God struck down 23,000 in a day for a pride month, quote-unquote. As Christians, we cannot support things like that. We must instead warn and evangelize this movement. In verse 9, Paul then talks about the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21. The people grumble. Once again, another shocker. And what do they do? They test Christ. They keep pushing the line. Let's just see what we can get away with. Get what we want. And what What happens? God sends serpents, and they just rid people out, right? Just snakes come through. I don't like snakes very much. I'll catch them, but no, it's going to bite me. And they just they take people out, right? More judgment. Christian maturity, then, is not testing Christ. It's not seeing how close we can get to the line without sinning. Instead, Christian maturity is getting away from the line as much as I can. It's not saying, well, can I get this close and not be a sin? Instead, Christian maturity is I want to get by the line. Just get away. I don't want to test him. I just want to get away. We don't want to test Christ. Instead, we should trust Christ. Yes, the Lord has great patience like a long candle wick. It's slow to burn, but it one day will burn out. In verse 10, we we read of more. Can you imagine grumbling? Numbers chapter 16 talks about the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a descendant of, of the priesthood. And they gather a small coup of about 250 people and say, Moses, you are really cocky. We're tired of you leading this charge. We want everyone to have access to the temple, which again, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that is also insane. You can't just walk into the temple and say, Ah, whatever. They want this. The Lord opens up the earth. It swallows them up. And then in Numbers chapter 16, verse 41, it says, the very next day... Do you know what happens? We lost a bunch of people. Moses, why did you do that? Do you feel that? Is the word crazy a good word to use? It's crazy. The next day they grumble. So again, the Lord sends a plague. Moses mediates. The the plague consumes about 15,000. And in verse 11, Paul ends the narrative by saying this. These things are written down for you. Look at, look at what you're reading. Be awake. It's written for you. Don't just blow it off. Don't just think, oh, that's never going to happen. To me, Paul's things are written down for our instruction. The end of the age is upon us, so be warned. Lastly, Paul's going to close us with helping us to overcome temptation with power and hope. So look at verse 12. Therefore, now a biblical helpful thing to remember is when you see the word therefore, what question should you ask? Well, what's it there for, right? Here's what it says Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, if we ever think, well, that's never going to happen to me, I don't need to hear this, Paul is saying, Paul's grabbing you by the lapels, saying, You're exactly who I'm talking to, right? Don't be overconfident. You are just as sinful as the Israelites are, just as tempted as they are. Don't be a fool. Jesus himself said to stay awake, to be, uh, to be watchful, to be sober-minded. Sin doesn't slow down, temptations don't take a vacation, and Satan doesn't take naps. Presumption upon the Christian life will kill you, right? We need to be aware of that. Whether a pastor or a deacon or a leader, old Christians, new Christians, don't be a sucker. Don't think that you are okay, Nothing have nothing to worry about. The Israelites fell. Peter fell, the disciples fled, David fell. What about us? How do we overcome temptation? Look at verse 13. Here's the answer. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Isn't that comforting? There's not a single temptation you will face in life that is, unbeat- that, that, is that is not beatable. No temptation is impossible to overcome. There, this is the Achilles heel of temptation, because when you feel tempted, don't you feel like, man, I'm just stuck. I have no hope. I'm the only one going through this. I'm dead me. You feel webbed up like a fly in a web. But instead, Paul is saying there's nothing in your, in your life that, is not, that not only has been conquered in the past, but not, it, it also can be conquered. You can actually overcome temptation. They're all common to man. Look at verse 13. What's your hope? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. In temptation, we discover that though we are unfaithful, God is always faithful. That God stands as a rock in a sea of temptation. You can can go to him. He is faithful. He's faithful then with Israel. He's faithful now. We have a faithful God for unfaithful people. He will uphold you. He will give you strength. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Notice also that God will not let you be tempted. Have you considered that God can actually restrain your temptation? Isn't that amazing? He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He can actually withhold it. He can, he can reel it back in. Like on a fishing, he can reel it back in. right? He can hold it back. He can govern it. He can not send certain people your way to tempt you or to test you rather. He can restrain things, ordain things, control things, cut things. He can do whatever he wants. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He can measure these things out for you. Isn't that good news? Now, God doesn't tempt anyone, James tells us. Rather, he tests. God tests us. Temptations come when our sin goes, oh, that looks really, really tasty. So God only sends tests. We make them temptations by our sin. I'm going to give you an example. Perhaps you're like me and you're prone to the sin of grumbling. I grumble a lot. Matter of fact, if I could get an Academy warden, I'd probably win a couple. So what is God going to do for me to relieve me of my grumbling? He's going to slow down traffic for me every single day. He's going to organize the news feed that I see to make me go, man, what is going on in the world? Grumble, grumble. He's going to send roadblocks for me. He's going to prosper somebody else that I'm going to see. He's going to weaken the things that I get for me. These are all done for me. So that, not that I will grumble, but that I will say, Lord, you are so good to them. Thank you for being good to them. Help me to be content. I don't, I don't, I'm, you've been so kind to me. Why do I grumble? Do you understand the difference? He does that stuff for you, that I would be more patient and be content and be thankful, that I would direct my eyes to things above, that I would not be tempted to sin and make that my fault, but that I, that I would not grumble and gripe but that I would be content, that I would not grumble, but be grateful. And God provides the way of escape. Uh, there's a story, uh, I told Kelly's born, she said it's a good story to tell us, so I'm going to tell it. Uh, about this young man who was fighting a donut, addict, a donut addiction he'd eat like six or seven a day just kept eating them just he continued to enlarge his figure he's a very, he's a teenager and wanted to stop so he's been winning for a couple days he gets to work with like four donuts in his hand they think thought you were fighting this temptation he goes well let me tell you what happened this morning i prayed lord if there's a parking space in front of the donut store i know that means that i ought not get a donut and after what, you know, after my 11th time ar- around the block, there was a front spot. <laughs> what was the way out of temptation? Don't drive around the donut store at 11 times. Just go, right? That was the way out. That's what you're supposed to do. Your way out is to drive a different way. Don't do 11 circles, right? There's always a way out of temptation, but we must embrace it. We must heed it by faith, right? And doing so, we can endure temptation. Friends, as we close, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the one to whom you look to. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows what temptation is. He is sympathetic. Look to him when you fall. He has borne your guilt for you. He is your way out. He is your treasure. Look to him and you will not be tempted. Psalm 107 says this, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Jesus is better than temptation. And he's better than sin. I want to read this hymn and then we'll close. O oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, his mercy, his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's how you fight temptation. Look to Christ. Let's pray.